Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. I'm here with JP. Great to be here. Amazing. Today, we're going to do a short episode talking about a very particular study that came out uh, just last year. And it was uh, with regards to long COVID. It's called Impaired Vagal Activity in Long COVID-19 Patients. And it was in the uh, journal Viruses. So really, really interesting paper here. And I'd love to talk to you about some of the findings here. What was uh, actually found during this study? What, what were the, the certain issues that they found? So as you can see here on the abstract, very clearly, we have a couple of markers, a couple of things that they were looking at specifically. In long COVID-19 patients, it is possible to detect a persistent increase in D-dimer, uh, the NT-pro-BNP marker, and autonomic nervous system dysfunction. All right, So let's talk a little bit about what long COVID is and how they classified it uh, as we go through here. But And then we can get into the study findings in particular. Sure. And I think this is just not to be a, a spoiler here, but I think that there's been a lot of work that preceded this study that suggested the involvement of the autonomic nervous system and specifically the vagus nerve in the pathology of COVID when you, in the viral phase, that the virus interacted with the nerve. And so, or the nerves, plural. Um, as we know, there's over 300,000 nerves in the uh, vagal bundle. Yes, um, but so I think it's it's not surprising, but it's it's good to see the uh, the details. Absolutely. Um, so what they mention here very clearly, dysautonomia may explain the persistent symptoms in long COVID nineteen patients and the persistence of a procoagulative state and an elevated myocardial strain could explain vagal impairment in these patients and in long COVID nineteen patients impaired vagal activity, persistent increases in NT pro BNP and a prothrombotic state require careful monitoring and appropriate intervention. So let's go through what they classified. They they have actual like timelines as to how they classified the particular diagnosis of long COVID versus acute and subacute COVID. So let's go yeah. into that a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think everybody who's experienced COVID, and at this point, I think that probably covers about 8 billion people on the planet, know that there's sort of two phases, if you will, of COVID. And I, I, they talk about it initially in the introduction. They talk about there's the acute phase and then there's this ongoing symptomatic phase. Um, and I think we've all experienced that. There's a phase in which the virus is really having its, its effects. And then the consequences of that having been the case can persist in your immune system and that your immune system and autonomic nervous system are somehow altered by having experienced the virus. And that's the post-COVID uh, period. And so they, they break it up a little bit further into an acute phase, which is when you're having the signs and symptoms of the infection. And they, they say up to four weeks, which I think is interesting because I think most people who experience COVID don't last with symptoms for four weeks. I think it's usually one to two weeks of symptoms, maybe even less, but they, they give it up to four weeks because people can still be positive on tests out to that, at that, that level. And then there's a period of ongoing symptomatic COVID-19, which is their description 
sort of describes you still have similar symptoms to when you were sick, but um, then they've got this third period, this post-COVID-19, which I think is what we typically consider long COVID. That's when you've got symptoms that may broaden out beyond what you originally had that were associated with the virus that can include some things that might seem a little strange that, that, that they were the consequence of, of this virus that most people think of as a respiratory virus. But it continues on um, really sort of indefinitely at that point. Yeah, so it, anything kind of beyond that 12-week marker that seems to have some sort of either immune or uh, odd symptomatic nature to it may be attributed to what we are now calling a long COVID uh, situation. And so what we're let's get into kind of some of the findings here uh, or, or some of the, the assumptions in the introduction as well. So COVID-19 and long COVID-19 can be systemic diseases associated with systemic inflammation and pro-coagulative state and can also promote sympathovagal imbalance, which is basically autonomic imbalance, revealed by acute and convalescent signs and symptoms of the disease. And the aim of this study is to verify the dysautonomia hypothesis in long COVID-19 patients and to evaluate the relationship between heart rate variability, inflammation, and the procoagulative state. So that's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking to find out just how much of the symptoms can be attributed to autonomic dysfunction or something that we now call dysautonomia. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they've they've taken these three pieces, the heart rate variability, inflammation, and the procoagulative state. I think we had an opportunity to speak earlier last season um, with Chris Shura, who works with a company that's looking at vagus nerve stimulation as a way to treat coagulative problems. And in, in fact, um, everything from a, a pro-hemorrhage uh, state associated with pregnancy all the way through hemophilia. Um, so there is a connection between the autonomic nervous system and your platelets and how you how you clot. So it, it, it's sort of an interesting connection that I don't think most people see, which is that your how you clot and how well you deal with bleeding can actually be associated with your autonomic nervous system. And we already know that inflammation is associated with that. So I think tying these three things together under the auspices of long COVID and COVID-19 infection is really very interesting that they did that. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite impressed by that as well. I think that's uh, really important. So let's talk a little bit about the study population here. A couple of important markers, a couple of important little tidbits that popped up here. So in this study population, they found that all patients were clinically stable, physically inactive, and in sinus rhythm. So these are the three kind of uh, hallmarks of these, these particular patients. So they were clinically stable, meaning they were not in an emergent, uh, emergency type situation. They were not having severe respiratory dysfunction where they were in need of respirators or ICU stays or anything along those lines. An interesting one was the physical inactivity, which we now know if we look at a few other papers that inactivity is absolutely tied to severity of disease when it comes to acute COVID. And in this case, they extrapolated that and put it into a long COVID type study as well. So physical inactivity was really important to find. And then the sinus rhythm was with regards to their heart rate. They were looking to make sure that they were in sinus rhythm, that nobody had atrial fibrillation, 
or ventricular fibrillation for that matter, that they had regular heart rate, heartbeat, and no irregularity from the electrical signaling that's going to the heart. So they weren't in a severe dysautonomia or a severe vagal imbalance that could be contributing to a sinus uh, or arrhythmia of some sort. Yeah, just a, a comment on that physical, physically inactive uh, portion of the study population requirements. And it's just a sort of anecdotal thing. I remember listening early on during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, listening to some commentary from Chris Cuomo, who was reporting from his basement when he had COVID. And he said that he had come to the realization that even though it was difficult to do and it, it required a lot of willpower, that you had to get up and move. That movement was a way that the virus wanted to make you inactive. It wanted to keep you uh, from moving and that, that just getting up and doing in any kind of movement and exercise was something that that helped to fight against it. And so I find it interesting that they chose this as uh, a requirement in the um, in their study. Yeah, I'll completely agree. It seemed really odd, but also makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to look at then autonomic function and vagal sufficiency to see in people that are inactive if there is a real difference there. And, and we'll see below, there, there is uh, a bit of a difference. They also found, or, or they also chose patients in this study that had been on a stable pharmacological regimen for at least two weeks before hospital admission. And all patients were then thought to be on optimal medical therapy at the time of their admission to hospital. All right, so uh, they did have pharmacological therapy being utilized to try to support their their ongoing care in the acute state and then we were looking to see did they get worse or or have any particular findings afterwards they did assess heart rate variability uh, obviously as uh, a marker of this and we'll talk a little bit more about that below but let's get into the specific results here all right so in the 30 long COVID-19 patients the mean duration of narrow nasopharyngeal swab positivity was uh First, for SARS-CoV-2 was 23.1 days, plus or minus eight. So that's a really interesting marker in itself. The range was anywhere between 11 and 49 days. Most people tended to get better and not have a positive swab marker uh, for, for 23 days, right? Like they, they tended to have a positive swab for maybe a week, week and a half, two weeks at most. But we're finding that those who... Uh, were, were then diagnosed with some sort of long COVID issue, actually had a positive swab for a significantly longer time. Do you want to comment on that? I do. Um, one of the things that's been noted in the literature we've looked at is that people who were hospitalized for COVID had a much higher ongoing long COVID or long haulers condition compared with people who recovered quickly at home. And the, so it, it does seem to be tied to the severity of the experience getting long COVID, um, which makes sense in a sense because when you have a, an inflammatory state that persists for an extended period of time, with, with time comes the higher risk that you're going to have ongoing symptoms. We know this from, uh, from the fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue uh, literature. We know this also from animal work that we do where we create models of long, uh, long-term or chronic pain. Um, we, we know that by instituting a long period of inflammation, 
you sensitize the animal and the animal stays in a pain-like condition um, for an extended period of time, maybe indefinitely. So it's, it's not surprising to me. In fact, um, the fact that they had 21 patients classified as mild to moderate versus, you know, looking at the, the, how their post-COVID symptoms played out, 7%, I'm sorry, 7 of the, of the 30 said that they had no or negligible functional limitations. Six had slight functional limitations, but 17 said moderate to severe functional limitations. I wanted to know, and they didn't provide that information, was were the 17 that had moderate to severe functional limitations, were they disproportionately part of the 21 patients who when they were clinically ill with COVID, that they were classified to, in the mild to moderate versus the severe group? It would be it would be nice to know whether there was a correlation there. It might not be a large enough sample size to 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 make conclusions, but it would be interesting directionally. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's uh, an interesting piece there. So, twenty three percent of the patients had no functional limitations, twenty percent had slight functional limitations, and then you mentioned the seventeen, which is fifty six point seven percent had moderate to severe functional limitations. Of those thirty that were then uh, diagnosed with long COVID type uh, symptoms. So let's get go through and kind of point out specific clinical characteristics of uh, patients that had long COVID-19 versus no COVID-19 and real differences, like real outliers on the differences between these two. The first one was chronic heart disease. Uh, thir- 13 or 13 out of the 30, meaning 43% of the long COVID patients actually had uh, chronic heart disease, which itself was uh, a marker rather than the 30% of the 20 uh, no COVID-19 patients. So there was a higher proportion of long COVID sufferers that had chronic uh, heart disease. And tied to that, I would call uh, hypertension as well. So 63% of the long COVID sufferers, 19 of the 30, had hypertension versus only 55% of the no COVID. And that might be a, a bit of an outlier, but uh, or not as huge of a difference. That said, there is definitely a correlation between a chronic heart disease, hypertension type of situation. But those two were particularly high here when it comes to medical history and uh, comorbidity. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting. We talked about the fact that it's been in the literature that when you have COVID-19, if you have pre-existing conditions, then you're at a higher risk for having, um, you know, a very bad, a very bad go of the of the of the disease. But it turns out that it also seems to tie to the long COVID condition, which means that when you have these these pre-existing conditions, you are in you're predisposed to being in a higher inflammatory state or pro-inflammatory state. And if inflammation is what's driving your getting long COVID versus not, it, it, it stands to reason that pre-existing conditions ranging from cancer and heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease, I mean, all the way down. Interesting, the outlier was, was actually chronic lung disease. Yeah. Because chronic lung disease was where it was actually a higher group that had no COVID-19, 35% versus uh, only 23% in the long COVID group. So just interesting, interesting tie-in to what we always knew, which was that pre-existing conditions made your experience worse. Exactly. Um, There were a couple other ones that were interesting here. A big one on the medical history was obesity. This one really stuck out. 
as well. So this is classified as a body mass index or a BMI greater than 30. And uh, of the long COVID-19 patients, it was 36% versus only 15% of those with no COVID-19. And this is something that we've seen in a lot of the data that obesity played a major role in. And we've talked about this previously in the podcast as well, that the size of your adipocytes, those fat cells uh, in particular, plays an important role in requiring more inflammation to be able to engulf it from a macrophage activity perspective. And so the control of uh, inflammation or the inflammatory cytokine activation that's required to absorb a larger adipocyte versus smaller adipocytes, there's a big difference between those two. And so the regulation of inflammatory cytokines comes down to this, and that's where obesity plays a huge role in likely going down that likely COVID or long COVID-19 pathway. For sure. As we went down through the study, there were a few laboratory markers that really stuck out as really important ones. Why don't you uh, take the lead on these? Yeah, I mean, these are all uh, these are all associated with various different either or, organ um, inflammation, uh, like some of the the liver markers. Your you know ALTs were higher, uh, lactate dehydrogenase. Um, you got it uh, you know, 448 versus 342. You can just see that in each case, these things are anywhere from 25 to. In the case of high sensitivity C-reactive protein, it was 16 versus a, a four, effectively a four. So it was four times higher. Now, obviously, the standard deviation was much higher in the in the 16, and you don't know to the extent that that outlier was having an effect on the average, but still. It stands to reason that high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is associated with ongoing inflammation, that the patients who had long COVID would be uh, would have a higher level. And the same thing is true of your, your D-dimer. I mean, here you've got, again, it's about a 4x increase um, in the long COVID group versus the, the non-long COVID group, uh, 1,044 versus 273. Yeah. So, this was one of the biggest markers here. The D-dimer marker in particular was was huge. But the really, really big one that was a massive outlier was the IL-6, interleukin-6 marker, yeah. um, which was a big difference between uh, the long COVID patients were 13.2 and the no COVID-19 were 3. So a huge difference. Uh, the effect size was nearly 3 or 3.5, nearly 4 Overall, so interleukin six being an inflammatory cytokine tells us that the control of this inflammatory cytokine, the ability to lower the amount of IL six, played a massive role in uh, allowing for the passive pathophysiology to go down that route of long COVID as well. And and high sensitivity cardiac troponin. Yeah, I mean a nine versus a one point six. Again, really big numbers. Now you would expect. The anti-spike protein, um, anti-spike antibodies would be much higher in the uh, in the group that had long COVID, um, but it's just again, it's a it's a marker that we we think stands to stands to reason, and and it it uh, it supports the the position that the more inflammation that you've experienced, the more likely you are to have ongoing symptoms. Yeah, so these are really important markers in blood work. But then when we got to look at the vagal activation and, and heart rate versus heart rate variability in long versus no COVID, there was very little difference overall within kind of the heart rate. We did find 
or, or they did find that there was a slightly higher uh, elevated average heart rate in the long COVID patients and their minimum heart rate uh, tended to be a little bit higher than the minimum heart rate in the no COVID-19 patients. But the maximum heart rate was was pretty similar and the supraventricular ectopic beats were very similar as well. Where the real difference showed up very clearly was in heart rate variability, both in time domain and spectral power or the um, frequency domain as well. So what we found is heart rate variability, there was a huge difference between long COVID. They found that the SDNN marker, which we'll use as kind of the the baseline here, 92 in long COVID and 127 in no COVID. Huge difference between those. Um, the RMSSD marker, 24.5 in long COVID versus 33.9 in no COVID. And the high frequency versus low frequency ratio, uh, huge difference. In the long COVID, it was 1.46 versus 1.23 in uh, no COVID. And so this tells us that there was a significantly higher HRV marker in those that had no COVID-19. And that's a direct sign of vagal activity because the high frequency ratio is specifically linked to vagal activity. So the vagus nerve tended to be stronger in the patients that had no COVID-19 versus those that had long COVID-19. Pretty big difference there at 1.09. For sure. And again, this goes back to what I said before when I gave my spoiler, which is that we know that COVID-19 interacts with the vagus nerve. And if the virus damages the vagus nerve, you can have, you're more likely to have long COVID-19 symptoms. And what damages it is the virus and the inflammation associated with the ongoing viral you know, presence. Now, it's interesting because the very original work done by uh, Kevin Tracy, looking at uh, vagus, what the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve stimulation parameters could do to inf inflammation in an LPS model was very interesting because what they did was, and, and this is a review for those of you who've heard it before, but the original study they did, they took rats or, or mice and they injected LPS into the rodents. And what they found was that by injecting LPS into a wild type animal, what would happen is you'd get a, a massive increase in the expression of, of, uh, of cytokines, inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha, IL-1, IL-6, et cetera. And what they found was that if you cut the vagus nerve, which is obviously ultimate in terms of damaging it, if you damaged it, that things would get worse, that you would actually have a worse expression of, of those cytokines, more inflammation. So what we're seeing here sort of is a parallel to that, that if the virus is damaging the vagus nerve, then you would expect to see higher markers of inflammation, which we saw, and it also, we know that heart rate variability goes down, is suppressed, especially the high frequency component is suppressed when you have inflammation. And so effectively, what this is showing is that inflammation is being caused by or is being, is being enhanced by damage to the vagus nerve, which typically regulates inflammation in the body. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we've talked about this time and time again. So I think what we're essentially being able to kind of take from this is if you have had or if you have poor vagal activity going in, meaning that you have less resilience to begin with from an autonomic perspective, then you're more likely to suffer from a long COVID type situation. And in the final kind of markers that showed very real 
uh, challenges the D-dimer marker, the uh, prothrombotic activity, NT-pro BNP marker was uh, a very significant marker here. And then the high frequency activity difference was quite significant between long COVID and no uh, no COVID-19 symptoms. So basically, they very clearly showed that HRV was significantly different in long COVID-19 compared to no COVID-19 patients. Uh, the population did not show any significant differences between long and no COVID-19 in demographics, medical history, drug use, and vital signs. And in the study, the enrolled population showed no gender differences, while previous studies showed uh, reported that females are most affected by long COVID-19. So there was some some difference in this study, but yeah, go for it. This is really interesting because um, we know that fibromyalgia is uh, associated with viral infections at times. Um, there's things like Epstein-Barr virus and other things that can lead to chronic fatigue. And females tend to be more affected by uh, uh, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue than males. And we know that migraines can also be triggered by chronic inflammatory uh, changes. And so, and females suffer with migraines more. So there's a number of different conditions that are like this. So it's interesting that in, this, in the setting of COVID-19, we see that women are more likely to be affected by long COVID. It, I think, goes to the fact that women of childbearing years have much more complicated immune systems and that their immune systems are, depending on where they are in their cycle, are uh, much more active in the pro-inflammatory state. And therefore, if, you're, if you go into being, uh, having COVID-19 in that pro-inflammatory state or, already, then you're more likely, I, I believe, to end up with long COVID. Although that study hasn't been done, it stands to reason based on everything else we're seeing. Yeah, I'll completely agree there. And overall, this study came forward to say that they found a significant correlation between long COVID-19 syndrome and the high-frequency component of spectral analysis and uh, low-frequency to high-frequency ratio, suggestive of vagal impairment. Very clearly, we can see that vagus nerve is impaired when it comes to people going down the path of long COVID. And so we want to do everything in our power to improve vagal nerve function, not only when in the symptomatic phase, but preparatory in the preventative phase, so that if you do end up getting COVID or any other condition for that matter, respiratory or whatnot, you want to have a resilience towards that uh, that inflammatory activity. You want to have resilience to be able to handle it and then be able to come back to uh, an optimal baseline that you started at. And vagal activity is very, very important when it comes to that particular uh, pathway. So I hope yeah. this study provided a lot of really good info. Uh, why don't you yeah. finish up there, JP? If I could just summarize what you just said, because I think it's really important to hammer that point home, which is that if you want to make it through a COVID-19 infection and get through it quickly and have limited to no long-term effects of having had it, then the best way to go into that is with high vagal tone. You want to go into that into that 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 viral infection with a really strong autonomic nervous system, and specifically your parasympathetic or your vagus being fun functioning at at optimum. Yeah, absolutely. We will share this uh, study or the link to this study in the show notes. But if for those who are interested, uh, but I hope this helps summarize exactly how vagus nerve is involved in whether somebody is going to go down this path. And uh, ideally, let's help people upgrade and improve the function of their vagus nerve so that they can control their inflammatory and immune activity and not go down this path in the first place. All right.
Have yourselves a wonderful day and we'll catch you on the next one. 